This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. This week's Spotlight, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Hello, uh, this is Lynn of uh, Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And today uh, we're going to be talking about another interesting subject, um, one we've spoken about before, roughly about a month ago on our spotlight. And how are you doing today, Jen? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to continuing this spotlight. I've heard some feedback that that's helpful for people to hear about the follow-up of some of the things we're talking about. So we definitely want to respond to that. Yeah. Today, uh, we're going to be discussing the subject of uh, Avital Ranel, who is a uh, professor of uh, philosophy at uh, NYU. And uh, she, uh, if people are following the news, has been accused of uh, sexual abuse by one of her students, a young man named Nimrod uh, Reitman, who's also uh, a young professor. And in his early 30s, and uh, she herself is in, I think, her early 60s, really. She was here at Berkeley, and I had the opportunity to meet her at that time. But the real concern is the question around female abusers and uh, how they're different from male abusers, how it's perceived differently, maybe by the culture at large, because this information coming forward about Professor Rennell first podcast was about the support from other faculty regarding the abuse, uh, siding with Professor Rennell. But now there's really a question, since there's a lot more documentation out there, she's been suspended for a year. The real question is, how does abuse look different between men and women? How is it received differently? Is it more common than was formerly thought? And really, how can we best handle this situation? And what are some of the ideas that it brings up? I think there are a lot of ideas and a lot of different directions that we can take this. I think a big part of it is that being able to explore a lot of these aspects and saying, okay, what is going on here? And also being able to compare it to how it may be dealt with had she been a male professor, you know, because we have more examples of that. And I think what has been something I've been thinking a lot about, especially in regards to the letter, you had mentioned, you know, how common that is for the male professors who have been accused of the same. And what it brought up for me that was thought provoking was that a lot of these professors are seen on the same kind of professional level as the people that they're defending. And abuse is often about powering over somebody. 
So it just brought up for me, especially in light of all these different situations coming up in the news, that a lot of times the people who are on the same professional level are going to get a different treatment from that person, even if they are an abuser, than somebody the abuser would see as kind of below them. Exactly. And uh, almost always, you know, I've been involved on a number of faculty abuse cases. There's a whole series of letters that are sent in. And they largely only address the person in power, the professor at the top, whether male or female. And there's little regard really for the other person. So I agree with you when there's a difference of, of power, even the supporters can't really see necessarily the differential. They can't put themselves in the other person's shoes, whether male or female. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of the situation. So I think maybe those letters are really, they're certainly part of it. But how should they be used? Should they be trusted? What do they really mean? That kind of thing raises those questions. So I agree with you about this one. Right. Like, what is it that they're trying to say about this person? And how is it relevant to this particular situation? I think those are the questions that run through my head. Exactly. And, uh, you don't necessarily see, now as we talk about it, Jen, you don't see the victim <laughs> sending forward a hundred letters to really demonstrate that they're... Their character. Know, yeah, in a way. And it, the person in power uses their power to really get these additional uh, kind of factors of validation to support them. So uh, I agree with you. I think that that part's highly problematic. You know, and that's one thing that maybe Professor Rennell's case helps us to see that that type of letter, whether written for men or women, really does not offer much in terms of figuring out this question, really. I think the question about Professor Rennell, though, was really, was she being treated differently because she was a woman and maybe being scapegoated that way? But as more evidence has become, come forward, it looks like it's parallel, at least to some of the scenarios of male abuse by faculty that we have seen and really work with. Well, in, in some ways it's parallel. Yes. In other ways there are differences, right? And I yeah. think that was something that you opened my eyes to, too, because I know mm. you've worked on some cases where there were female abusers. And speaking, maybe you can speak more to it, but the maternal aspect of how it can kind of have a maternal aspect that's gone awry and, and cross into this boundary where it becomes abusive. Yes. And as, as you point out, Jen, boundary violations are a key part of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. So there's body boundary, there's psychological boundary, there's emotional boundary, and then there's a violation of that that really takes place. With female abusers, I've seen over the years a couple major differences. And in the maternal uh, aspect, a lot of women who do abuse will use maternal aspects uh, and confuse them with the abuse that's going on. So um, I'm going to take a different example than Professor Rennell and talk about maybe the typical, if there is a typical female abuser, will hold, stroke, caress, and say loving things to the male that she is abusing. Mm -hmm. often mostly younger men and uh, or boys, 
and uh, then offer this in a kind of maternal context. And there was even some of this observable in what uh, uh, Mr. Reitman said about Avi Rennell's uh, responses, uh, caressing and holding and, you know, giving things that normally a mother, maternal caregiver figure would do. But it could be perceived as a boundary violation if the relationship is not one that is characterized by that sort of behavior. So that the violation of maternal boundaries or, or intrusion of maternal behavior into relationships where you would not normally see them, you know, that seems to be a big part of it. Do you think it comes into play that Professor Rennell herself doesn't have children? Well, I I looked at that, and some of the commentators have at least said that both uh, uh, Mr. Reitman and uh, Professor Rennell are both Israeli. Um, She made an initial contact with him in Europe when he was on his way over to be part of her program, and she was reaching out and I think felt a special bond with him. Um, you know, so she might have seen him as a long lost son from her country of origin, yeah. and she felt especially close to him. But I think what it brings up for me, you know, I've been a professor too, 40 years and thinking about you really got to watch those boundaries. You've got to be thinking, how does this seem to the student? How does this feel to the student? And over the 40 years that I've worked, I've had young men that I've supervised and, uh, you know, worked on their theses and other things. And I do think often about how it might feel to them. So I'm very conscious and I do have maternal feelings toward them, you know, but I'm conscious about how is this playing out, really avoiding physical aspects of it that might be seen as a boundary violation certainly not entering the private quarters such as a bedroom of that person. So when I look at Professor Rennell's situation, I see intrusion into the bedroom and, uh, you know, physical uh, boundary violations, unwanted touching as expressed by Mr. Reitman is the two things that are really glaring. And, uh, you know, if women think about that, they might think, well, it was just mother bringing over chicken soup to him. Uh, One of the cases I worked on was a therapist who violated her male patients with these caring mother things, giving them teddy bears, holding them, visiting their house with soup and other things, maternal gestures, but But not appropriate towards someone who isn't your child, isn't your child. Exactly. And maybe inappropriate, except with fairly young children. You know, have a young grandson, yeah. and you would hold him, you'd caress him, you'd hold him that way, but then he's going to change, and he's going to become a boy and a man, and it's not going to be appropriate anymore. Yeah, age is a factor yeah. in that as well. Yeah, so these are violations, and uh, I think your question, she wasn't his mother, she'd never been a mother, and maybe there's some confusion about what that role entails. Yeah. Just things that come up and things that I think about when reading this, because I do know when I first read the article, I was thinking about it kind of more that she was looking at it as kind of a lover perspective. But then I kept thinking about it and I was like, it doesn't sound like 
that's kind of where she's coming from. It it sounded kind of more maternal. And then when you had brought up that pattern, I was like, yeah, that seems more like what I was perceiving. I mean, obviously, I only have the information that's presented mm-hmm. there. But the therapist sense, you know, that was kind of where I was seeing things too. And I, I think this gets to maybe why we wanted to do this podcast is that with women and abuse, there are different risk factors and maybe different patterns to look at. And I think you opened my eyes yesterday, Jen, when you said there probably are is a lot more female abuse that's really unrecognized and it might be more in this arena. Well, I think there's there's a lot of factors there that made me say something like that. One is obviously we talk about the culture we're in. There simply are not that many females with these types of power positions. And I think as that becomes more prevalent, it would be interesting to see whether some of these rates rise or whether it's reported more. I think speaking of reporting, another big issue is that Still, when men come forward saying that they have been abused, a lot of times they're not taken seriously either. And that plays into kind of our cultural stereotypes about can women even be abusive? Right. And there's a couple factors that play into that. Women uh, in general can't penetrate, at least not with the penis. They could certainly get an object and penetrate and do things in that aspect. So the mechanics of sexual contact is often different uh, Mm -hmm. with men and with women. You know, though I've seen abuse cases, you know, very graphic and horrific cases where penetration has been part of it and horrific things have really happened to individuals, but that's not the case here. So I'd say in in general with men and women as abusers, women, there's the mechanics being different. Mm -hmm. There's this maternal factor that we've really talked about being different. There's the public perception that's different of if a woman does it, there's uh, the disbelief factor, I think, that really goes into that. And I think it may even be harder for men to come forward and to say they've been abused by a woman. You know, I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of the courage that Mr. Reitman has doing this. I think it's not easy to say this, that you've been in this position with an older woman, and it takes courage to really bring it up, describe it, and talk about it, which gets to your point is, is it being covered up or not being brought forward more frequently? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that I've been wondering, too, is under what context did he choose to bring this up? Because it sounds like it wasn't until he felt that his career was really being thwarted by some of these letters she was sending, letters of recommendation that she was sending, that he took more of a stand in trying to push things forward. So I think there is a component where a lot of men still feel that you know, as long as it's not directly impacting my life in certain ways, then I have to keep this to myself. I just have to deal with it, you know, Mm -hmm. that you can't share the experience. And I think hopefully we're in an age or a time period when that's changing. And regardless of your gender and how you identify, if you are abused, that you believe you have a right to your voice and to have your story be heard. And it takes courage to come out and talk oh, about it. Takes it takes extreme courage. Right. Um, 
with boys who've been abused that we work with, we know that it often takes them much longer mm-hmm. to really come forward with their stories, and most don't. So we know that really mm-hmm. from our research and child abuse. I was going to say, too, a lot of times when I am working with a client who is identified as a man or a boy, that they often come in with something else. You know, it might be like a severe alcohol problem, major anger issues, relationship issues, you know, pornography issues. And it's through that process that it comes out that they have this abuse history. So I think it it can in some ways take longer for there to be the trust for them to divulge some of this information. So we were talking about uh, the Avital Mr. Reitman situation and uh, some of our concerns about that. One of the other concerns that I have about it is the uh, the boundary violation in in general and what that really represents both for men and women. Because I think whether a man is an abuser or a woman is abuser, one of the most important aspects of it is really the boundary violation aspect of it. How do you see that, Jennifer? Well, I think boundaries are a huge issue here. And I think in just reading a lot of forums and things, what comes up a lot of times is that people are now afraid to have any physical contact with a person, and that's not great either. So it's really, I think, about teaching people that it's important to pay attention to the cues that a person is sending out, that even if they aren't saying so, you know, there are signs of physical discomfort that people display and being able to be aware of those, of those body signals, I would say, you know, that that is an important part of an engagement with someone because the boundaries aren't about like what you think is okay. It's about how the other person feels in relation to you. And it's an interaction or a mutual boundary going back and forth. And you may understand your part of it, but you may not understand how the other person's feeling or the interaction component of it. So there's a lot more, I think, to it with the boundary, you know, the, the boundary land in between and then the individual boundaries that are really interacting. I wonder, based on just some of your question earlier, do people in power lose their ability to really sense the boundaries of the people underneath them or at lower levels of power? And that that may be is part of the reason that you see so many boundary violations from people in power directed downward. You know, it's uh, how sensitive really are they to that or do they assume that because they feel that way, the other person feels that way. That's sort of what I was going to say. Is I in in my experience, I think it's it's more of the latter in in terms yeah. of what you're talking about, and so that's why to me, in terms of what we can do to really change things, is you can really push forward this idea that the engagement isn't just about what you want; it's really about that mutual connection with somebody, and that communication happens not just through your words, but also through those physical body language cues are a huge part. Tone of voice is a huge Mm -hmm. part, right? But that these communications are more than just what's being said. And 
I think that's so important too, because as, as we know from our experience working with these clients, a lot of times they don't feel in a position of power to say something, but certainly they are sort of showing physical signs of discomfort or trying to convey to the person that they're not okay with what is happening. Exactly. And how do we help people, you know, at all levels, but certainly people in power to be aware of power boundaries? I mean, one of the issues with our current president is his lack of awareness, really, of power boundaries. And, uh, you know, our, in fact, our past presidents have been areas where this has really been in question, too. Are men more aware of it? Or do men and women have to be aware of it differently, as this Professor Rennell situation kind of indicates? I think yes and no, because of the culture we're in. But I think in, in terms of just, you know, trying to change the narrative of what does a respectful engagement look like? Because I think there are many men who feel that those those aspects are not important. And so they're like, well, this person didn't say this, so it must be fine. And I think we really have to change the narrative around what does it, what do you take into context in terms of someone agreeing to something or not agreeing to something? So I guess what it really comes down to is, is a form of consent, right? There's sexual consent, but there's also other forms of consent when you're engaging in any type of communication. Yeah. And for any type of relationship, there has to be a form of consent. We've kind of joked about enthusiastic consent, you know, around sexual exchanges that yeah. has to be present. But, you know, for relationships in general, you know, consent is checked constantly going back and forth. As therapists, we're constantly checking, monitoring, right. you know, the consent, you know, how does the patient feel about this, this comment, the back and forth, where is it moving? Mm-hmm. You know, but even in our outside relationships, that's a very big factor, you know, involved with that. So being learning to be more attuned to that, being aware of what power carries, people hold back, I think, with people in power and don't express things that they might otherwise express because they're afraid, you know, because they maybe want something from the person in power. There's all kinds of reasons people do that. Well, exactly. There's all kinds of reasons, but I I think a big part of it comes down to if you create an environment where there's a sense of security, then you have people who are more willing to dissent with you and be able to express their opinions in, in a respectful way, right? But they won't always just kind of go along with things. So I mm-hmm. think the fact that if you are not able to to feel that with whoever it is that is above you, that really is kind of a something to pay attention to, something to go, okay, something's off here. And if you are that person in power and you feel like everyone around you is just agreeing with you all the time, (laughs) to also kind of question that. Exactly. So it is the environment that's really taking place there. And it's clear, you know, this is where the Professor Rennell, Mr. Reitman vignette is very important because it offers us an opportunity to see two people who really seem to be missing each other around this type of consent and connection. And there's all kinds of reasons for that to go going on. But that boundary violation clearly was broached there. 
Yeah. And I, I think some other things that, you know, you had brought up as we were talking about what do we want to mention was also questions around believability. You know, when, when somebody is saying this happened to me, you know, what are some of the factors we look at as a society and maybe versus kind of as therapists to to examine, you know, a person's believability? Right. And with all the, you know, the cases certainly I've been involved with um, and we've looked at them, you know, when you're looking at believability, you want to know how many people are making the allegations. You know, that's a real factor. I think gender plays a role, you know, with men who have a, a history of abusing others. There's that factor that really plays into it. The nature of the abuse how egregious really is it, the specifics? Uh, does it involve penetration? You know, what is the boundary violation? Um, and then one of the recent cases you brought up to me is the Ryan uh, Seacrest case. And, and because he's a very charismatic person, even though he's recently been accused of abuse, people are looking away, you know, and the charisma of the individuals involved in it plays a role. Yeah, that came up for me kind of randomly, actually. I was sitting in the car and, you know, Ryan Seacrest hosts his radio show. And he, I was thinking about some of these different things and he came on the radio and I was like, wait, wasn't he accused of sexual harassment or sexual abuse of his former stylist? I was like, wait, why is he still on this radio show? And then I thought about, you know, it, it seems like I don't really watch much TV, honestly, but it seems like he's still on all his programs. And so I was just thinking about, you know, how come he's still remained where he is, even though, you know, she's she's made it pretty clear that she's not changing her story. She's been very specific about the things that happen. She says there is a witness. And it just brought up a lot of these questions for me about how we handle these situations. Well, you, you know, you're right to ask that. And I think another factor is really position of power, because until quite recently, position of power and still position of power, you can stay there. And, you know, he has a fair amount of power. Our president has a fair amount of power. So even though allegations by multiple people are made that would highly discredit that individual, they stay in their position of power. Well, what I was mm -hmm. also thinking is that you see the people rallying around them, and it's very similar to what was happening with these kind of letters, where people who are on the same power level as the accused are rallying to kind of support them. But you hear different stories from the people who are at a lower power level. Exactly. And by letters, you're referring again to the letters that were written oh, in yes. support of Professor Ronell in the, the case we're talking about, the female abuse case here. But the letters happen for men, too. They come forward in just the same way. You know, when men uh, are accused of abuse, our president will come forward and say, well, I know he's a good guy, as if that discredits, you know, those who are coming forward and talking about the abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think it also brings up to me that it would be really interesting. I think it's an important part of these investigations that you not just talk to the people who are on a similar power level, but also people who are around that were maybe on a lower power level? Do they have this same 
sense of this person. Exactly. And it, I think one of the other things that uh, came up around the Professor Rennell situation is really how much abuse goes in one direction that, you know, all of her colleagues may see her one way and really see her as quite respectful and caring and a whole range of other things. But then maybe a larger group of students, apart from Mr. Reitman, see her as acting in this way. And I agree with you. I think people react and treat others differently, some people, in terms of the power level they perceive them to have. Yeah, and I I want to point out that it doesn't mean that she isn't respectful mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, that she isn't talented and all the things that they're saying about her. I just think it's really important to think about this this context. What are you trying to say and who are you talking to? Because are you looking at the way these power dynamics often work? I mean, when we look at patterns of abusers, they're often very well liked by many members of society, but it doesn't mean that they weren't also abusive to certain people. Maybe well liked and very careful that, um, you know, they abuse down, but are very careful about how they treat those above them. Yes. You know, and I think that, um, you know, <laughs> it's not the congenial nice guy, nice woman situation, but really that they've learned very specific ways of treating people. And that's that's a concern and topic for more conversation, Jen. But Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. But I think this has given us a lot of ideas and food for thought. And we'd like to hear from our listeners about this. Sounds good, Lynn. Take care. Bye. Come on. Let's talk about sex.